Today we begin our study in the trials of Jesus. And there are six different phases in his trial, but it's best for us to think of a Jewish trial and a Roman trial. And we're probably more familiar with the Roman trial. We know that he stands before Pilate. Pilate is reluctant to convict him. And then when he hears that he's from Herod's jurisdiction, the Galilee, he sends him over to see Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas sends him back to Pilate. And Pilate reluctantly, right, washes his hands. I'm, I'm free of this man's blood. And then condemns him to death. I'm not quite sure you can wash your hands, free yourself from someone's death, and then condemn them. I'm not, I don't think it works that way, but we'll see and we'll learn a lot of things as we get into the Roman trial. But the Jewish phase of the trial is extremely important as well because we see prophecy that has been foretold beginning there. And I think this is important for us to know that as Jesus begins the physical torment, we've seen him in agony in the garden. That was the beginning of the passion. But now he is struck, we, we will see tonight, for the very first time. And that this is not out of his control. He has given himself over to this. He knew it was coming and we want to see that. But also he uses this point of humiliation to reveal the grandness of who he is. He uses the Jewish trials to reveal his deity. I've had people tell me before that Jesus never, for, for, for over the years, I've had people tell me Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah or never claimed to be the Messiah or claimed to be God specifically. And my response has always been, well, if you claim it yourself, there's a lot of people claiming their God, a lot of crazy people claiming their God. And if you claim it yourself, it's not as powerful as scripture that fulfills and confirms that you are. Let someone else's lips praise you and not your own. But through the humility of the Jewish trial, Jesus makes two statements that reveal the divinity, that he is God in the flesh. And it is incredibly powerful. I'm excited to look at it tonight. Now, there were just as there were three phases to the Roman trial, there were three phases to the Jewish trial. They took them, first of all, to the high priest Annas. There were two high priests. It was a unique time. Two high priests in Israel during this time, Annas and his son-in-law, Caiaphas. The Bible tells us that Caiaphas was high priest that year. We don't know whether they switched off or whether it was just that year that they'd been changed. But Annas was high priest and Caiaphas was high priest as well. And so they brought him, first of all, to the older Annas. And Annas questioned him. And then he brought him over to Caiaphas. And Caiaphas gathered together with the Sanhedrin. That's the ruling party in Israel that was found in Jerusalem. And they, they found charges to charge him with. And then they regathered together again in the morning. And that was more like a rubber stamp on what they'd already done. They weren't supposed to meet at nighttime anyway. And now they needed to make it official. So they, they did it in the middle of the night, in the darkness, trying to make sure they had something to get him. And then in the daytime, they needed to rubber stamp it. And so are the, those are the three phases of the Jewish trial that we are going to see. And we are reminded that all of these things are foretold. In Psalms 22, in Isaiah 53, in different places in the Bible. But I want to read you, as we think about Jesus, 
being struck. They're going to put a bag over his head. They're going to punch him. Then they're going to say, prophesy which one of us hit you. When you think about that, being punched in the face when your hands are tied is hard enough. But being blindfolded and then having someone punch you, you can't pull away from the punch. You can't dodge it at all. They're just hitting you and the full force of the punch is coming in. And this is where it all begins. Of course, we know what he goes through and we know where it ends. But listen to it being foretold. This is Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 11. And I want to remind you, because people used to say of this particular passage and others like it, that Christians had control over the Bible for so many years, they messed around with the documents. Now, there's other reasons besides the fact that we found the Dead Sea Scrolls that we know that, that Christians didn't mess around with the documents. These are Jewish writings as well. We have too many commentaries on Isaiah 53 for it to have been messed with by Christians after the fact. And we have the Septuagint, which is the Greek copy of the Old Testament that was finished about 160 years before the time of Christ. This is kind of an ad hoc argument that people would throw out there, meaning really there's no evidence for it. People make these kind of arguments. It's kind of like, well, we just think Christians messed with it. Bible prophecy isn't important because Christians messed with it. Don't believe those kind of statements. And a good way to respond to it when someone throws something like that at you, like, well, I just think Christianity was invented by men as a crutch. When they say something like that, one of the best ways to respond is to say, why do you think that? What's, is this something you think? Or is there something that you found in early Christianity that you think that men invented Christianity as some kind of a crutch? Why, why do you think that? And all of a sudden, you erode their lack of evidence if they don't have any. Now, if they have some and they're actually thinking based on some form of evidence, then more power to them. Then that's great. We want to know what that is, right? We want to know what the truth is. But most often when those kind of statements are made, like Jesus fulfilled these prophecies only because they went back and doctored them after the case. Well, that's just, that's just ad hoc. There's no evidence for it at all. And when you say to someone, well, why do you think that? When were they, when were they messed with? What's your evidence for that? Rather than trying to defend it right away. See, our, our, we usually want to go to defend it. We want to be like, no, it was around before. But rather than defending it right away, find, make them actually defend their question that they're asking. But here's Isaiah 53. And this is an amazing passage that obviously is about Jesus. It's a, in a section that is called the servant, God's servant. And Jesus came as a servant. It starts in verse four, or at least we're starting in verse four. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to slaughter, as a sheep before the shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and judgment 
And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was killed. That's what he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken and he was made his he made his grave with the wicked. So there's no doubt that there's a death here, right? Made his grave with the wicked. But with the rich, with his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there deceit in his mouth, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Why did it please God to bruise Christ? The things that we will be studying over the next few weeks because of you, because of the love that he had for us. The Bible says that God demonstrated his love for you, that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. It's like Hebrews that tells us that Jesus endured the cross, despised the shame for the joy that was set before him because he could give to us eternity. It pleased the, the Lord to bruise him, to bruise him. He put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. Now, that's the idea that he will see the things that he has planted. He has died. He's been in the grave, but he will see his seed. He shall prolong his days. This is one of the resurrection passages in the Old Testament. The Bible tells us that the gospel is that Jesus died for your sins according to the scriptures. It's written and that he was buried and rose again according to the scriptures. And here we have Isaiah 53 speaking of a death and then a resurrection. Yet he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. It was not something made up by the disciples when Jesus got himself crucified, got the wrong people angry, got himself crucified that somebody came up with. Let's just say he died for our sins. It was foretold. This is not the only passage Jesus fulfilled. And Jesus fulfilled them, proving that he indeed was the Messiah, the anointed one sent by God to free us from the chains and the bondage of sin. Now, let's see what we can learn from the Jewish trial of Jesus. In, um, in John 18, and I'd like you to start there. I know you've got your Bibles open to Luke, but if you would open them now to John 18. I want to start there. I just want to kind of take a look at the Jewish trials throughout our study tonight. We'll have enough time to do that without being really long, I promise. So in, in John 18, 12, this is where we're going to start and, and we see the three phases. So it says in John 18, 12, um, yeah, 12 through 14, then the, the, then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jewish, of the Jews, arrested Jesus, bound him, and they led him away to Annas first. For he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Caiaphas in his place as high priest had brought a prophecy that it was expedient for one man to die for everyone. And then in John 18, 19, it goes on to say, then the high priest 
or the high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and their doctrine. Now, according to Jewish trials, they are not supposed to interrogate the person. Kind of like we can take the plead the fifth. They weren't to interrogate the person. You were supposed to have witnesses. And so they're asking Jesus about his disciples and doctrines. And so Jesus sets him straight. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to you in the world. I was always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always met. And in secret, I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. Now, all Jesus is doing is telling him, you're not even supposed to ask me. Go out and do your job. Find those who listened to me. Find out what they said. Now, we know at this point that they bring false witnesses in, but they can find none of them that agree. None of them that will be able to hold up to any cross-examination. And even though they will rubber stamp this thing through and they're going to bring these witnesses to Pilate, it's not going to work because Pilate doesn't care about the religious things that they try to bring against him. But they're trying to find something. And then it says in, uh, in, in verse 22, and when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand. So here's where it began, saying, do you answer the high priest like that? Jesus answered him, if I have spoke evil, bear witness. Again, get your witnesses. But if, uh, but if well, why do you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So at this point, Annas, the older the more experienced, was not able to come up with anything against Jesus. This also reminds me of an event with Paul the Apostle. Paul stood before the Sanhedrin as well. And Paul said something and they slapped Paul. But Paul's response was not like Jesus's. Paul said, God will slap you, you whitewashed wall. And they said to him, you speak to the high priest that way? And he said, oh, I didn't know it was the high priest. So there's a little bit of difference. But Paul went through a very similar experience. Well, now let's turn to the second part of the trial. This is Luke 22, 63 through 71. Now, the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. We know from the other Gospels, this is where they put a bag over his head. These are the Jewish guard that arrested him. At this point, we don't believe that the Roman guards were involved. They will be involved later. And having blindfolded him, they struck him in the face and asked him, saying, prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke to him. Now, at this whole time is when Peter is denying him, when he is being beaten, when all of these things are going on. And we know that during that part of the trial, Jesus had said the things that he's going to say again in a moment that we're going to look at that are going to help us to see how Jesus is in control here and how Jesus uses the Jewish trial. So it says, as soon as it was day, now we're already in the third phase. The first phase was before Annas. The second phase was at night where they beat him and they questioned him. And he said the same thing. We get this account of the middle of the night in one of the other gospels. I think it's the book of Mark. Matthew may also have it. And then we get what happens in the morning from Luke. As soon as it was day, 
Now they're going to bring him to Pilate after this. The elders of the people, both the chief priests and the scribes. Now that's a phrase for the Sanhedrin. When they, when they used that phrase, it was saying that the Sanhedrin was gathering together. So this is an official meeting of the Sanhedrin. They came together and they led him into their council. Again, this is the 70 rulers. It is the highest court of the land. Nicodemus would be a part of this Sanhedrin. Joseph of Arimathea, who we will see later on, would be a part of this council. And they said to him, if you are the Christ, tell us. Now, now they're back to questioning him again. Now, Jesus had revealed to several people during his ministry that he was the Messiah. The first person was a Samaritan woman in a well of Samaria, where she said to him, after he told her about her life, he said, she said to him, the Messiah is going to come and reveal all things. And Jesus said, he who speaks to you is he. He told her that he was the Messiah. Also to a blind man that he had healed, who had been excommunicated from the, the, the temple. Jesus found him and told him that he was the Messiah. With his new eyes, he had seen the Messiah. What an amazing thing. And then there's that great statement where Jesus asked Peter, who do you think I am? Or asked his disciples, who do you think I am? And Peter says, well, you are the Christ, which is the Greek for the Hebrew Messiah. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And then he said, don't tell anybody. So he wanted to be kept a secret at that point. Don't tell anybody. It wasn't time for it to be revealed. So Jesus could very easily have told Caiaphas, yes, the Messiah is standing in front of you. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me. If I tell you that I'm the Messiah, you won't believe me. And if I ask you if I'm the Messiah, you will by no means tell me. But then he says this, hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. And Mark adds in, and come on the clouds. So he, he says this statement to Caiaphas. From here on out, the Son of Man is going to sit at the right hand of the power of God and come on the clouds. There's an Old Testament passage, Psalms, which says Yahweh, the name of God, the Tetragrammaton, Yahweh is the one who walks on the clouds. There's another passage that says Yahweh is the one who treads on the water. And it is Jesus who came walking on the water to his disciples at night. It is a revelation of who he is. So what does this mean when he says to them, here on out, you will see the son of man sitting on the right hand of the power of God. Well, the son of man was Jesus's favorite phrase for himself. They would make a statement about him and he would say, well, you don't know the day that the son of man is going to return. And hundreds of other times when he referred to himself as the son of man. A son of man simply means human. And I have heard people say quite often, by the way, in teachings, well, son of man speaks of his humanity and son of God speaks of his divinity. Half right. 
Son of God does speak of his divinity, and I'll show you why in a moment. But Son of Man speaks of his divinity as well. Not because it means divine, it means human. But it's a human who is divine. And that's because of Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Let me read it to you. Daniel sees a vision. He's seen all kinds of beasts and creatures in this vision. It's a vision of the last days. And it says, I watched till thrones, notice the plural, thrones were put in place. And the Ancient of Days was seated. Who do you think the Ancient of Days is? It's God the Father, right? There's no doubt. He's the Ancient of Days. His garment was white as snow. His hair and his head were like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame. I love it. The throne of God is, is fiery. Its wheels a burning fire. It's a it's a chariot that shoots flames out. It's a souped up throne, as only I could think, right? It's wheels a burning fire. Fiery streams issued forth from the before him, and a thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The courts were seated. And the books were opened. This is an event at the end of the age. And we'll see this event. Daniel 7, 13 goes on to say, And as I watched in the night vision, behold, one like the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. It is Yahweh who treads on the clouds, the Bible says. And he came to the Ancient of Days. Now, this is the Old Testament. It's not like we're reading this from the New Testament where you have the Ancient of Days on the throne and you have a Son of Man who we know who the Son of Man is coming to meet God. It's the Old Testament that this is written. This is what I call the complexity of God. It is, it is seeing the Alpha and the Omega. It is the Father and the Son being revealed here. There are Old Testament passages which reveal the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all three in one. In Genesis 1, 25 and 26, God says, let us make man in our own image. Who made man? God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let us make man in our own image. So he made them in the image of God. It's complex. There's us there. Who's the us that creates? And who is the son of man coming to the ancient of day on the clouds? And they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion. This is the Son of Man brought to the Ancient of Days. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. So when Jesus said this to Caiaphas, do you think there's any chance that Caiaphas didn't know Daniel chapter 7. And when Jesus said to him, from here on out, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power of God and coming on the clouds. The Caiaphas was like, I've heard that somewhere before. What does that mean? I'm sure Caiaphas began to seethe when that happened. 
In verse 70, in fact, you can almost sense his anger. Then they all said, are you then the son of God? Now, I love that they, these scribes and Pharisees from the first century had made a connection between Daniel chapter 7 and the Son of God. There are several passages in the Old Testament, Psalms chapter 2 and several others that talk about God having a son. And they hear him say that he's the Son of Man coming on the clouds and going to set by the, the Father with power and glory. And they say, are you the Son of God then? Now, I had someone tell me, a lot of years ago now, someone that I thought knew that Jesus was God. And I said to him, well, something about Jesus being God. And he said to me, Jesus isn't God. He's his son. And I literally did one of the, the kind of like. What? That he believed that you couldn't be the son of God and be God. And it made me realize all of a sudden he was involved in a. A, a church that has an aberrant teaching. So I'm not going to say that they're not believers, but they have an aberrant teaching. And I used to argue with them about the teaching all the time. And all of a sudden it dawned on me, I need to be sharing Christ with him. He needs to receive Jesus. He needs to become a, a believer. Now this statement that he is the son of God is a statement of deity. Just as much as the statement that the Son of Man. In Hebrews 1, 5 through 8, it says, For to which of the angels did he ever, ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. This is a quote from a psalm. And in, in, in Hebrews 1, he's showing the superiority of Jesus over the angels. Because there are people today that just believe Jesus was an angel that he was a good prophet or he was an angel. And he's superior to which of the angels did he say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father and you shall be to me a son. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world. Now that firstborn there doesn't mean the first person ever born. It means the right of the firstborn. In your family, in biblical times, your firstborn son inherited everything. The rest of your children got leftovers. Now, that's not the way they worded it. But the right of the firstborn was that he took that position. So Jesus is the firstborn and we inherit everything with him. It says when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. So right here, we see angels worshiping the son of God who's coming into the world. If they're worshiping him, then he's got to be God, right? Now we're making a connection. We're saying, here's the son of God. He comes into the world and then the angels worship him. So it's got to equal God. This plus this plus this equals God. But the text gets even better. It says, all the angels worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire, something about angels that we could consider later on. They are servants and they are a flame of fire. At the very end of this chapter, he'll say that angels are servants sit to minister to those who have life. You and I have life in Christ and angels minister to us. But then he says this. He says, let me read all the seven again. But of the angels, he says, 
who makes his angels spirit and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness and a scepter of your kingdom. Now, I want to tell you again what it says, just in case you missed it. I don't know how you could have. God says to his son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. God calls his son God. So to say, are you the son of God then? This is a quote from a psalm. So again, do you think there was any chance that these religious leaders, the 70 elites in Jerusalem, in Israel, don't know that psalm and that Jesus has been called or the son of God has been called God. Again, it's the complexity of God. You say, well, how can, the, how can God have a son and how can the son be God as well? Because it's three persons, one in essence. It's the Trinity. The complexity of God is not found in the New Testament. It's found in the Old Testament. You can teach the Trinity from the Old Testament completely. And then it throws in this. It throws in, um, and the scepter of your righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Now let's go over to Psalms 2. Let's read that passage about the Son of God. This is a messianic passage, not because any Christian says it's messianic, but it's messianic because Jewish rabbis dealing with Psalms have said for years that Psalms 2 is a messianic Psalm. And in Psalms 2, verse 7, it says, I will declare a decree, the psalmist says, the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This is Psalms 2, talking about the son of God being begotten, becoming a person. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. He's saying to the son, you're going to inherit the nations and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces with a potter's vessel. That's millennial kind of language, what Jesus is going to do during the millennium. Verse 10, now, therefore, be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in your ways. Kiss the son, lest he be angry is a way of saying, make things right with the son or you will perish in your ways. It is the son who will have power and authority over everyone's life. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you and you perish in your ways. When his wrath is kindled, but a little. And then it says this, blessed are all of those who put their trust in him. Does that not sound like the New Testament? Doesn't that sound like the gospel? You are blessed if you put your trust in Christ. I can hear Billy Graham. Have you trusted Christ? Have you given your life to him today? It fits so well. So Jesus uses the trial. He doesn't use when he's speaking to the crowds on top of uh, the Mount of, of, of Beatitudes. He doesn't use the time he's feeding the 5,000. All of these would have been great times for him to say, by the way, I am the son of man who's going to come on the clouds of glory and I am the son of God. But he uses the humiliation of being beaten and tortured to make the glorious statements that he is God. 
out of, out of those events, God is showing us that he can use the most difficult, toughest times and maybe even out of those bring the greatest things that can ever happen in our lives or the re greatest revelation of things that can take place within our lives. In verse 71, and they said, what further testimony do we need? Well, you can't convict someone on their word. It, by, by the Jewish law, you can't convict, you can't confess. You can't go in and confess to a, a crime. You have to have witnesses. You got to call your witnesses. So they're like, what further testimony do we need? A lot, you guys. You are the, they are the Supreme Court of Israel. And they're now breaking every rule in the book. They weren't supposed to have a trial at night too, by the way. They weren't supposed to crucify or they weren't supposed to execute the person on the same day they gave the sentence. These are just things that make sense, but they're biblical things as well. And then it says, for we have heard ourselves from our own mouths. This is blasphemy. He claims to be the son of God and he claims to be the son of man. For those who would argue that Jesus is not God and that saying that he's the son of man and the son of God is not a statement of deity, then tell me what the blasphemy is. If you're going to say that, that, it, that that's not what he meant, what is the blasphemy then? Why then are they ready to convict him and, and kill him? It's only because, as I've shown you, these things are clearly seen as Jesus himself saying, I am the son of God. From here on out, when people say to me, Jesus never claimed to be God, I'm just going to say, how much time you got? Let me get the Bible up on my phone. I got a couple things to show you. Because Jesus did. He just waited until the right moment, which was the moment he was in all of the suffering, to reveal his glory. What an amazing thing. That in the, in the depths of that comes the brilliant light that this is the Savior dying for us. Now, three things in closing. Number one, Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. There are four suffer, uh, servant passages in Isaiah. Did you know that? And Jesus fulfills all of them. It'd be easy for you to find them. Just look up servant passages and then go and read them. They so obviously are of Christ. Number two, Jesus is not only the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, he is the son of man from Daniel chapter seven. And he will one day return on the clouds. Have you ever wondered what's the deal with the clouds? Jesus says, I'm going to come back on the clouds. The Bible says that we're going to meet him in the air, in the clouds. When Jesus went up into heaven on the ascension in the book of Acts, which we'll read a little while from now, he's, he's taken up in the clouds because he's the son of man on the clouds. And it is Yahweh, the, the I am who treads on the clouds. And Jesus is the son of God of Psalms 2 which is God. And in Mark's gospel, Jesus makes the statement about being God. It is as you say, he says, I am. And when he says it's as you say, I am, that's the Greek ego ami, which is the translation of the tetragrammaton, I am. It was a claim again, so clearly to be God. It's not the only time Jesus spoke ego and me. He did it several times, especially in the book of John. You remember when we studied him being arrested in the garden and they came to arrest him 
And he said, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am. And they all fell back on the ground at the power of that pronouncement. When Moses said in the, to the burning bush, to the angel in the burning bush, who should I say sent me? God said, tell them I am that I am has sent you. And then later on, he said, tell them I am. And he gave the tetragrammaton. Tell them I am as doing these things. So God is the great I am. And Jesus is that great I am. He's the son of God of Psalm 2, the son of man of Daniel 7 and the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And I'll ask a question. Is he your Lord? Is he your savior? Have you received him? Have you trusted in him in the words of Psalms 2? Because the Bible says as many as receive him, he gives the right to become a child of God to those who trust in his name. And before you leave here tonight, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the clarity and for what we see as Jesus begins his suffering and the confession that he makes before the Sanhedrin of being the son of man and the son of God. And Lord, we pray that we would know that this weight the heaviness that who is our savior, the one who loves us, the one who lives inside of us is, the, is, is, is God himself. The one who saved the world is our Lord and savior. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.